This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining me for the next half hour is Dan Russo, who's the chief market strategist at Shaken Analytics, a firm local to my area here in Philadelphia. Uh, he Dan writes a daily market insights newsletter. Dan, welcome to Behind the Markets. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for coming on. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about Shaken Analytics and your role there, how you look at the world. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so Chicken Analytics uh, is a quantitative equity research firm uh, founded by, by Mark Chicken. Uh, a lot of people in the technical analysis community will recognize Mark Chicken's name. Uh, he's famous for creating uh, some of the indicators that a lot of technical analysts use uh, day in and day out uh, across various markets. But, you know, through his time um, on, on the sell side and, and dealing with some of the biggest buy side investors in the world, you know, he kind of developed this view of what drives you know individual stock prices and with that markets and he developed a model a quantitative model that has 20 factors uh, where we crunch numbers every night and come out with ratings on over 4,000 US listed equities and more recently uh, over 700 uh, or actually over 1400 uh, equity ETFs and what's interesting about our ETF rating is we drill down on the individual holdings. So my role here is as the chief market strategist. And as you said, I write a daily research note for our clients, uh, kind of looking across all markets and, and thinking kind of big picture, uh, what's going on within the markets, where is relative strength and what kind of strategies uh, make the most sense given the current market environment. And then from there, kind of utilizing our quantitative model to find you know ideas, either individual equities or ETFs. Well, that's a great a great background. Interesting way to systematize how you're looking at the markets. Um, but the uh, you know when you think about the markets generally, um, you know, give us your take on. You've had a, a big breakout, a big rotation, positive vaccine news. How do you think about the markets where we are? So it, it's interesting and somewhat non-consensus. I think. Uh, I actually think that we are closer to the beginning of a new cyclical bull market uh, than to the end of a, of a cyclical bull market. Uh, I actually think that if you were willing to broaden your view beyond the biggest mega cap stocks, right? So essentially Apple, Amazon, Facebook, the, the FANG stocks, if you will, uh, broaden your view away from that, Um I think bigger picture, we were in a bear market for two years with the COVID bottom in March actually being kind of the uh, culmination of that move. And now the be- now we're seeing the beginning stages 
uh, of a new bull market. And the reason I say that is because if you look across different different markets and different asset classes, yeah, if you look at small cap stocks, the Russell 2000 went nowhere for two years. And it's just now, even with the big run that it's had since March, it's only recently uh, regained the highs that it made in 2018. If you look at something like the value line arithmetic index, so essentially the average stock in the market went nowhere for two years. And now it's finally just this month cleared the highs that were reached in 2018, moving away from equities and looking at, you know, other asset classes, which I spent a lot of time doing, you know, treasuries have been really strong, traditionally a, sta- a safe haven asset. And now they're beginning to roll over like gold, another safe haven asset had been very strong, spiked into the, into the, the COVID pandemic. And now that looks like it's beginning to roll over as well. So I think the case can be made uh, that we're closer to the beginning than to the end of a cyclical bull market. Well, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of people look at these big moves and say, man, I missed it off the bottom. And, you know, am I just chasing it higher here? And so, so it's interesting to hear how you guys think about sort of that rotation and where you are in, in those sort of bull market cycles. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think the rotation actually is another data point that supports my view, because if you kind of think about what was playing out uh, for the past two years, you know, all of the money had been flowing into the let's call them, quote unquote, safest stocks, the, the big the big uglies, if you will. Right. You know, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, Netflix, you know, you, you know who they are. Uh, those are defensible business models viewed as viewed as safe stocks. And you had your smaller stocks, right? The, the components of the Russell 2000 and even go beyond that, go to something like a, like a micro cap index, right? That went nowhere and actually had a downside bias. So the fact I think that we're seeing rotation into smaller stocks. When you think about the, the sectors that are going with that small caps and micro caps, uh, are there particular within the, within the market, different sectors that you find particularly attractive for that rotation? I, I do actually. And it, it's been fascinating to watch how the rotation has played out over the past six months. Uh, you know, back in the June, July timeframe, uh, we started to get more bullish on materials and materials began to outperform. And then in August, it was the industrials. And now the industrials have been outperforming. And I think that there are some drivers there that point to kind of things getting better economically. As hard as that is to kind of grasp, given a lot of the news flow, you know, on the margin and incrementally, things seem like they're getting better. And you can see that in sectors like like industrials where the transports are trading at you know, all-time highs, where even now the airlines are starting to come on. So from there, um, we've watched the rotation move to financials. Banks overly reserved in the first half of this year. Nobody knew what, what the economy was going to look like. Uh, if things are getting incrementally better, which it looks like they are, you know, banks' numbers should be going higher. In addition to that, you have a steepening of the yield curve Right. Another sign that from an economic standpoint, things are probably getting better. The long end of the curve uh, is going higher. You take a look at what long bonds are doing today, even on the back of uh, the non-farm payrolls report. The curve is steepening. So to me, that's a, that's a tailwind uh, to the banks and, and to the financial sector. And the one that's 
kind of getting to be interesting now is energy. And I, and I can't believe I'm saying that because you know, we've been bearish on energy for a while. Our model, uh, looking at the different energy ETFs, whether it was broadly, you know, we had been bearish on them. And, and just this week, our ETF model uh, started to turn bullish on some of the services ETFs. So kind of lining up, the rotation is interesting because to, I, I kind of describe it as it's not an on-off switch. You don't all of a sudden decide to sell large cap, buy small cap, right? sell tech, buy energy. It happens gradually over time. And you know, part of what I do as a, as a technical analyst is, is watching those trends play out. So, um, so that rotation has been interesting. But I think more interesting for the market in general uh, is just the fact that the strength is broadening out, right? We, we look at something called market breadth, you know, the, kind of see how many stocks as a percentage of the total uh, are, are moving in concert with the market. And ideally, you know, the saying is, you know, markets are strongest when that strength is broad. So if I look now, you know, the, the S&P 500, uh, over 90% of the stocks in the S&P 500 are trading above a long-term measure of trend, their 200-day moving average. Over 75% are trading above their 50-day moving average, and 70% are trading above their 20-day moving average. So it doesn't matter if we're looking long-term, intermediate-term, or short-term, we have a healthy majority of stocks that are in uptrends. So um, the rotation is fascinating, but more interesting to me is the strength is broadening, right? And one of the big bear cases uh, on the market coming out of the March lows was that leadership was so concentrated in those big technology and consumer facing technology stocks. And I think that that argument has is largely being debunked as we speak. Yeah, it's so interesting. When you think about the mentioning being bearish energy for so long and then all of a sudden things turning, you know, it started to turn with the vaccine in the early November. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, now you've got sort of in, on a day like today, you've got some OPEC coming with some news in addition to just the reopening expectations. Was there something that you think catalyzed besides just that vaccine and then now it's sort of momentum building on itself? Or where would you say, you know, how, how are you diagnosing that setup there? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, I think people are starting to come to terms with the fact that uh, the supply-demand dynamics are actually starting to move in favor of energy. And I realize that you know we're probably going to a world that has increasingly um, a higher proportion of clean energy. But you know, for a long time, you had a lot of kind of unprofitable energy projects. You know, companies were just burning cash. And so a lot of these highly levered companies are starting to go out of business. So the supply side of the equation um, starts to look a little bit more interesting. On top of that, uh, given a push towards you know, ESG and, and more, being more environmentally conscious, uh, I'm of the view that you know, not as many projects are going to be funded. Right? So the supply side looks, I'm not going to say constrained, but it looks better. And at the same time, you know, from an economic standpoint, it looks like things are getting better. So the demand side starts to pick up, right? Add in OPEC and, and some of the news that came out of, out of them this week, and it looks interesting. And then start to layer in the fact that energy, I don't think in my career I've seen a group 
more hated uh, than energy was, you know, three, four months ago. I mean, we've gotten to the point where energy has shrunk uh, to about 2% of the S&P 500. So in a world that's going more and more passive, you know, that's just as, as their weight in the index shrinks, less of that passive money flows there. And just sentiment around it has been awful. And it became, I think, a consensus view started to gel around the fact that if Vice President Biden won the election, that that would be a negative for energy. And I think if you kind of flip that on their, on its head, yes, we know that, you know, Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden is has an ESG focus. But if you think about what that means for the supply side of the equation, and if you think that less projects get funded, you actually set up a pretty good dynamic for energy stocks to work. It's almost reminiscent of tobacco stocks, you know, a couple of decades ago, right? People were quitting smoking. We all know smoking is bad. The tobacco, everybody thought the tobacco stocks were going to suffer. And they've actually been some of the best performers over the past 20 years. And I think you're kind of seeing a similar setup in the energy complex. The catalyst for what, the kind of why now, I think, you know, the vaccine gives people confidence that, you know, from an economic standpoint, um, things are probably going to look better a year from now than they do now. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Uh, we're talking with Dan Russo, Chief Market Strategist at Shaken Analytics. I think, you know, D- Dan, it's interesting on the on the energy setup. I, you know, I, I a lot of people would talk about how Trump was good for the energy sector and, and maybe it's for employment and for drilling and all the rest. But the energy sector was the worst performing sector under Trump. And then there was the narrative on Biden's going to be bad for energy. And, you know, he on and maybe it is for some of those different projects, but maybe that sort of constrained supply is one of the things that makes that energy sector actually a, a good place i think yeah i think that that's an interesting i think that's an interesting way to think about it and again to you know to the point of, of sentiment or things kind of becoming a consensus view um it, it was hated uh, like i said yeah. i've never seen anything as hated as energy has been and and had has gotten and you can see i mean you just pay attention to some of the things some of the softer things that you look at I, one of the one of the cell side research shops um, recently dropped coverage of the entire space. Right? You, you see things like that, and you say to yourself, things, these, this is probably priced like it's going to zero, and if you know, there's even a slight chance that it's not going to zero, it starts to make sense. Now, you know, if I'm purely a technician and I'm looking at something like XLE, it certainly looks like early stages uh, of, a basing, of a basing process. And if I kind of look within our model, our model does a really good job of parsing out where is the relative strength and where it makes sense. So right now we're seeing the emerging strength uh, in the services names. Um, and they're actually starting to outperform the market. EMP, not quite there yet. So energy as a whole, it, getting better on the margin, I think it's something to be paying attention to, but I think it's somewhere where you have to kind of be a little bit more selective. You know, I don't think you just dive right in and say, I want to own energy. I think it makes sense to, to be selective within the energy complex of where you want to be. Now, now one of the points uh, I know when, when you're looking at the, the tech sector and some of the moves going on there, one of the, the components is, is particularly interesting, the semiconductor space within tech. How, how are you looking at the, the technology sector and, and some of those more cyclical semis? You know, this, the, I think that what you're seeing in semiconductors is, yes, um, they're traditionally cyclical. Uh, and anybody who's been looking at markets for, for more than 10 years, 
thinks of semiconductors as cyclical. I think a couple of things have changed. Number one, you've had a fair amount of consolidation in the space, especially uh, on the storage and memory side, which is probably the most cyclical side uh, of the semiconductor supply chain. Um, but the amount of semiconductor content that touches our lives is only increasing. You know, one of the jokes that I like to make is, I don't think we're far off from a world where you're driving, you're a mile from a supermarket, and your car gets a text message from your refrigerator to let you know you're out of milk, and then your car drives itself to the supermarket where, where it's already placed an order and your milk is waiting for you curbside. Right? I, I joke, but I don't think we're far from an environment like that, and that environment doesn't exist without increasing amounts of semiconductor content. So I pay really close attention to the semiconductors for that reason. And then kind of drilling down technically, uh, a lot of the work that I've done uh, around semiconductors, in particular, their relative strength. So whether they're outperforming the broader market or underperforming the broader market, uh, points in the direction of when semiconductors are outperforming the broader market, um, we'll use the S&P 500 as a proxy for the broader market, uh, that tends to be a positive for the market in general and for technology in particular. And semiconductors are outperforming currently. Uh, the rate of their outperformance is actually accelerating. So while the rotation play, trade was playing out, I think a lot of people started to think, well, you know, tech has to be in trouble, right? It's been the big leader. If money is going to leave somewhere, it has to leave tech to go to these other places. And I kind of pushed back on that, number one, because of semiconductors and, and their outperformance. And if you kind of look at one of the most important countries in the world uh, as it relates to semiconductors is Taiwan. So you look at Taiwan, which has a huge weighting to Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, as well as to the technology sector in general, it Taiwan's trading at an all-time high and showing no signs of letting up. So you kind of connect those dots, and I say to myself, well, tech's probably not rolling over. Uh, and technology is roughly 25% of the S&P 500. So when I see that, I say to myself, you know what, market's probably going to go higher. Tech's probably not in trouble. And it's just kind of another data point uh, for our bullish view on the market. But I think semis are, a lot of people talk about copper, and we can get to that because I pay attention to copper as well. Uh, a lot of people talk about copper being a barometer for what's going on in the world. And I would argue that you should be paying as close, if not more, attention to the semiconductors. The world is becoming more digital. Semiconductor content is only moving higher, right? If you think about things you know, like autonomous driving, wearables, um, none of that is possible without increasing semiconductor content. Now, the group is still somewhat cyclical, so pricing is going to matter. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the memory stocks have been under pressure, again, for the past two years, uh, and they're just starting to break out. So if the most cyclical area of the semiconductor market uh, being memory, or take a name like Micron, um, if, if that's breaking out, that's likely a positive uh, for semis in general. And if we flow that through the thought process, uh, for tech and, and for the market broadly. 
That's very interesting. Um, you know, I know a lot of groups are looking at artificial intelligence and, and look at semis as a key component to that. So your anecdote there resonated with me on, on all that. Interesting on the, you mentioned Dr. Copper uh, as one of the indicators. Maybe talk a little bit about that, how people look at copper as a, a sign of the economy, what that's pointing to today. Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, I mean, copper is an industrial metal. I mean, if you, you know, kind of, if you ripped your house apart, uh, you'd probably see a lot of copper, right? And it, it's 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 an industrial metal widely used throughout the economy. Uh, what, the way I like to look at copper is its relationship to gold. Um, I'm not an economist. I don't spend my time poring over the you know the components of GDP. Uh, I'm a markets person, so I kind of needed a way to figure out what the market is telling me about exit. Uh, for the economy. And the best way that I've found to do that is to look at the relationship between copper and gold. If you say copper is an industrial metal widely used throughout the economy, and gold is a precious metal, which is generally turned to uh, in times of uncertainty. And what's interesting is the, that ratio of copper to gold um, topped out in 2018 and was in a steady decline. So copper was underperforming gold uh, for over two years, right? Kind of in line with that view that I had that we were probably in a bear market for two years and nobody knew it because they were only looking at the FANG stocks. Um, since the March lows and more recently accelerating, copper has been outperforming gold. So to me, that kind of speaks to another data point of things are probably getting better, or at least investors think they are, um, which is why we've seen the rotation uh, that we've seen into some of the areas of the market, like industrials and, and and energy, because investors are kind of pricing in an environment where where the future looks better than than the present, and it it doesn't have to look a lot better. It just has to kind of get better on the margin, and, and that's enough to to kind of get that rotation going, which is what we've seen play out. I mean, if you look at um, you know when these more cyclical areas of the market, in particular the financials and energy, uh, started to get going to the upside, it was as copper began to outperform gold. So that's kind of my barometer. It's kind of what allows me to, to play an economist without actually being one. We have only a few more moments, but I know you've also been looking at Bitcoin. Maybe you just sort of one-minute closing thoughts as you think about the, the world and all asset classes we haven't touched on Bitcoin. Give us your, your worldview there. Uh, I think Bitcoin is interesting because you have, again, for me, it's it's a supply-demand dynamic. I'm not uh, a Bitcoin fanatic the way some people are. Um, it makes sense to me. Uh, you have you know supply increasing at a decreasing rate, while at the same time, the demand side of the picture uh, is improving. You've seen some more institutional interest. You know some of the some of the more forward-looking hedge fund managers. Uh, out there are starting to build positions. You're actually starting to see some corporates, right? MicroStrategy just converted 95% of their, the cash on their balance sheet to Bitcoin. Uh, Square, run by Jack Dorsey, uh, who is a, you know, a Bitcoin bull, converting a portion of their balance sheet, uh, the cash anyway, to, to Bitcoin. So, um, you know, if I look at it, even if it's purely just an inflation hedge and it's quote-unquote digital gold, uh, in an environment where central banks are in a race to see who can print the most, uh, I think that if you're looking for inflation hedges, and I do think inflation is going to start to rear its head again, 
gold is obviously interesting, but if you're looking for the, the, the play that could move the most, uh, I think it's Bitcoin. Well, that's a great way to end the program. Dan Russo, Chief Market Strategist at uh, Chicken Analytics. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Behind the Markets. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks for producer Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 